In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Angela Searser, retired FBI agent and profiler. Susan Kostler-Drew, retired FBI agent and profiler. And Bob Drew, retired FBI agent and profiler. So on the last show, we began our discussion of the serial killer Israel Keys, and we detailed the disappearance of Lorraine and Bill Courier from their home in Essex, Vermont. And they had gone missing in June of 2011, and that was a case that we looked at at the time when we were assigned to the Behavioral Analysis Unit. And it wasn't until after Israel Key's arrest in March of 2012, that we learned he might be involved and be responsible for the abduction and murders of Lorraine and Bill. He had been interviewed at length many times by investigators up in Alaska, detailed or gave enough information regarding that crime investigators were able to piece together and prove that he actually was the one who was responsible for the abduction and murders of the couriers. In February of 2012, Samantha Koenig went missing out of Anchorage, Alaska, and the Anchorage Division of the FBI contacted us at the Behavioral Analysis Unit shortly after she went missing She had been kidnapped from her place of employment. This was on the evening of February 1st. She had worked her shift as a barista in a drive-thru coffee stand. It's like a little kiosk that was in a parking lot. Samantha's boyfriend was supposed to pick her up, but when he arrived, she wasn't there. A few hours later, he received a text message purportedly from Samantha, and it said that she was going to spend a couple of days with her friends and to let her dad know. To those who knew Samantha, this was out of character. She never would have done this. She never would have just left. It appeared that she just walked away from her job, and her friends and family said that is something she would never have done. So the following day, they contacted law enforcement, and she was reported missing on February 2nd. So at this point, law enforcement discovers that there is security camera footage and it captured her abduction. And what we saw on that video, we see Samantha working, she's making coffee, she's completing her normal duties, and seems to be completely unaware that she was in any danger whatsoever. However, around closing time, which was at 8 p.m. She starts to clean up, completing those duties that she normally does when she's closing for the evening. 
and then someone approaches the window. Her attention is drawn to the window. She appeared to hand that person something, and then at some point she quickly backs away from the window and her hands go up as if she's being robbed or has become aware that she is being robbed. And then she turns and turns off the lights and then someone immediately jumps through the window. And it was very quick. I remember thinking they must be very physically fit and able to just so quickly jump through the window. And then they walked away and they walk out of view. And then nothing is heard for a number of weeks. All logical investigation was conducted. Examining Samantha's victimology, she was an 18-year-old white female. She grew up in Alaska. She was there through high school. She was close with her family, especially with her father. There were no indications she had any significant issues with her family. She didn't have any drug or alcohol abuse issues. She had a lot of friends. They described her as being a very kind person, very caring, and as already mentioned, she had a boyfriend. He was obviously looked at very closely, but by all accounts, there was nothing to indicate he was involved in her abduction. So let's just stop right here and talk about the abduction itself. So this comes into us at BAU. There's a lot we have to consider. And at this point, we don't know all of her victimology. People haven't been ruled out. And there's a lot of things we have to consider. First of all, we considered, is it a real abduction? Is it potentially a hoax of some sort? Is she involved? Is this a way to extort money or is someone else trying to extort money from her family in some way? We don't know at this point. There's been no communication. All we know is that someone jumps into the kiosk, takes her, she disappears, and she's gone. And she's gone for several weeks. And there's not a word other than the text message that her boyfriend receives. And of course, something like that, we have to consider, is it potential staging? And we've talked on this show about different types of staging, verbal staging. I guess you can also stage using text messaging as well. There certainly have been uh, cases where that has occurred, where someone has abducted someone, or in some cases, person is already deceased, and yet they're using their phone uh, to send text messages or make it appear as if they are still communicating with folks that they know. And certainly, we see strange things in the behavioral analysis unit, and we see this, and you have to look at it, we have to be very critical, and we have to think of all the different possibilities. And, you know, I tried to watch it and think, okay, is she possibly involved? Is this fake? To me, it seemed very authentic. Even trying to say, okay, is she acting? Is she know this person? Is there any indication? It didn't seem that way to me. Nor to me. I felt like overall the information that we had early on uh, looked to be a true abduction. And although I think they were still in the process of ruling out other possibilities, clearly the boyfriend had to be looked at early on. It certainly seemed that this had been an abduction. And there was nothing in her life or anything that anyone could point to that would indicate she would have left on her own accord either. When you have a missing person for whatever reason, one of the things that is looked at is uh, evidence of continuing life after they go missing. One of the things that is looked at specifically is communications. In this case, it appears that Israel Keys was posing as 
our victim in that she had voluntarily left for a period of time. And again, there's a practical side to that in that if that were believed, perhaps there would not be as quick a reporting. It would buy him more time. And these are all just practical concerns. It, because he is posing as the victim, he is not putting in sadistic content, nor is he indicating what the true situation is. In this case, that will come later. But in the short run, if his message purporting to be that of the victim were believed, then it would buy him some time and perhaps the police wouldn't be contacted or the police would be slow to respond because they have that message in front of them. A couple of things about that initial message that stood out to me at the time. Number one, she says she's going to be with friends. So is this something she would normally do? Which friends possibly? These are all leads. Check with all her friends. But this isn't something she would normally do, according to the friends and family who were interviewed. And the other thing that was added was to let her father know. And as we had come to learn, she was very close with her father. So how would the offender know, okay, let her, her father know? There is something in there. At first, you have to rule out, is this her? Or is this someone that knows her well and knows that she has a close relationship with her father? In this case, we now know it wasn't Samantha and it wasn't anyone close to her or that knew her very well. For some reason, Israel Keys had information her father needed to know that that was the person this message was really intended for to keep him maybe from contacting police but somehow he he had that information the one thing about him we know and we know this now and we know this from interviews he did with investigators we know this from people that knew him in his normal everyday life he was just a regular guy. He was easy to talk to. And so I wonder if at some point he put her at ease, said, I'm not going to hurt you. All I need is this information. I'm just going to ask for money. Who do I need to contact? And perhaps just his demeanor put her at ease and she was giving him this information, thinking if I give this information to him, then he's going to let me go and I'm going to be okay. It could have also been under duress that he gave that information. Um, she had been abducted from her place of work. I'm sure she was extremely frightened at this point. And it could be that she was willing to tell him whatever he asked of her in hopes that she would be set free. It could also be that he was threatening her with violence. So she gave him whatever information that she thought he needed in order to try and um, stay alive. It's hard to know. We only have his side of the story, unfortunately. It could be the truth or it could be what he wants us to think is the truth. And the other consideration is, let's say he took her and he killed her immediately and he wasn't able to get any information from her. But he did go back to the kiosk and get her phone. So he had her phone and perhaps just looking through her text messages and phone calls, he saw that she had a lot of communication with her father, that they were very close. And that's why he threw that in there. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, but clearly at the time, we're like, okay, somebody knows this person, whoever they are, they have personal knowledge about her, that she has a close relationship with her father and he's the one to notify. I thought that was significant. 
he had taken Samantha out of the kiosk and then went back to the kiosk to grab her cell phone. And then later, after he had taken her to his shed and put her in the shed, he went and got, and we know this, of course, after the fact that he went and got her debit card, which was in her boyfriend's truck. If you think, too, of her age and how even at at this time, how much a woman of that age likely was to use her phone, that I'm sure she had hundreds of pictures on it. She probably hadn't deleted any kind of text messages. And so someone who had access to that phone would readily have been able to see probably multiple pictures of her or her with her father and also of past text messages from her father and or her boyfriend. And so could probably pretty rapidly ascertain just how much of a close relationship she would have had, at least with those two individuals, if not with others. That may have been what prompted him to send the text to the boyfriend, trying to, again, knowing that either he and or the father would be looking for her to send this message to hopefully persuade them, thinking this might keep them from calling for at least a couple of days and give him an opportunity to to distance himself. In terms of her risk factors, during this time that she's missing and there's no further communication, investigators are gathering all her victimology. And, you know, I've touched on that. But what we learn is that she's a low-risk victim, very low-risk, doesn't live a high-risk lifestyle. All her close family and friends, there's no indications of issues. She's never had any issues, no criminal history, not involved in any kind of risky lifestyle. So when we look at it and we look at, okay, where is her risk? Well, her risk was working in that kiosk. That's what we determined, that her risk was elevated by being in that kiosk, working there during the evening. It's a busy area. A lot of people see her, and and that's where her risk was elevated. I think if you look at both her and then you look at the couriers, both are really low-risk victim selection. What elevated the courier's risk was the fact that they lived in an isolated situation and that for hours at a time, it would just be the two of them. And in her case, she was in an isolate, she was in a booth, she was isolated. And yes, there were a lot of people and a lot of customers that came and went, but not for the entire evening. So when there were no customers and when there was no traffic, she was an isolated victim. Just there in a small booth, easy to control. You know, she's not working in a, a large retail store where she could find cover or co-workers or anything like that in the form of defense, she was basically standing in a lot in an isolated small booth. And once there were no other people around, she was in an extremely vulnerable position. In keeping with Key's normal behavior, he is looking for that vulnerability of circumstance. Although he says his selections are random, when asked. It is not random. He does surveillance. One of the things we always said that the attractiveness of a victim to a killer, the availability and the vulnerability 
were three factors that were pretty much universally considered by a serial killer. And in this case, the availability and the vulnerability were answered by the physical locations of the victims that he chose. Yeah. And you mentioned how he said, well, this is just random. I just picked my victims randomly. But what we know is that he's a planner. And maybe he's thinking he's picking his victims randomly because he doesn't know them personally. But you're absolutely right. This is not random. And he's too much of a planner to just randomly go grab someone without surveillance, without watching, without making sure that he is striking at the most opportune time. There's one point when he's interviewed or when he's being interviewed by investigators and he says, there's always a specific way I wanted things done. Very specific way I want things to happen. And I have the whole thing planned out. I have everything I need to do it. These are not random crimes. He's telling us, I plan it all. He's only saying it's random because he had no personal connection to the victims. Another thing along with that planning versus random is that he lived with a girlfriend and a child. And in order to bring a victim back to where he lived and to put her in the shed and to be undetected and also to account for periodic absences from his home, that all had to be planned, that all had to be explained, none of which he would have time to do if the victim was just was merely quote unquote random. Oh, I think I'm going to abduct and assault and kill someone today. This was very much planned out and in, like I said, in a very specific way, not only in the way in which he wanted to commit the crime, but I think also to make sure that he had other aspects of his life organized so that his crimes would not be detected. Another statement he made, every time I drive, I'd be looking for places, good places to do stuff. So you're talking about somebody that isn't just periodically thinking about this. He's living this. This is what truly stimulates him. It's what he's passionate about because he's done it before and he knows how it feels and he knows there's nothing like it. So he's constantly looking for that opportunity. And then, like Sue was saying, he puts everything else in place. And like Bob was saying, does surveillance. He makes the time for that so that he doesn't make any mistakes. And he works out the process from beginning to the very end. He knows exactly what he's going to do. One of the things that people describe the psychopathic personality, Dr. Hare created a psychopathy checklist, which was a 22 items, characteristics of a, a personality. And you needed, they were marked zero, one, or two, and you needed a certain number of points, somewhere around 15 to be considered likely to be a psychopath. The mistake that's made oftentimes is that people think that someone who is psychopathic would have to hit on all of those characteristics that are listed, and they don't. And this isn't just a psychopath. This is a sexually motivated serial murderer who possesses a psychopathic personality. That's different 
than just someone who tests as being psychopathic. They may have other traits less offensive to society. In other words, they're not murderers. They're not, they're not rapists. Their lack of conscience and their callousness may come out in other ways. But in this case, this is a sexually motivated serial killer who has a psychopathic personality. He is not impulsive. The way I always think of it is that he is the equivalent of the person who, at the night of a a party, may be dancing around with a lampshade on their head. However, you find out when you ask about that individual that they're the ones who rented the hall. They're the ones who hired the band. They're the ones who arranged for the bartender. They made all the logistic arrangements. Then on the night of, you might see some impulsivity on the part of that party planner. But that's because all the details have been tended to. So in this case, he sets the stage for the impulses and the paraphilias that he wants to engage in, those that will gratify him. At that time, when he's engaging in that behavior, then seemingly impulsive behavior might be manifest and might be observable. But before that, you see meticulous planning, which he admits himself. He plans meticulously. It's so funny that you bring that up because when Angela was just talking about how he's always thinking about this, driving around, this is something that's always with him. I was thinking of that very thing that a lot of times in describing psychopaths, one of the top characteristics is that they're impulsive, impulsivity. But a lot of the cases that we've worked on, the killers are not impulsive at all. Not the serial sexual killers. They do plan. Sometimes they forget things and they make mistakes. And certainly we see this with Israel Keys and it's how he gets caught. But so many times we see people describing psychopaths and they say, well, they're impulsive. They may be impulsive. That could be a potential characteristic, but it doesn't mean that they all are. And oftentimes they're not. And he certainly is not an impulsive individual. In order to engage in a crime like this, if this were just impulse, if he were a very impulsive person and that was what was happening was that he, say, drove by that night, saw her in a booth and just decided at that time, I am going to abduct her. First of all, just logistically, his chances of success without being apprehended either immediately or very soon afterward, there'd be a great chance of that. But because he's not, and he's willing to delay gratification, that is something that I don't think most people would attribute when talking about a psychopathic killer, that they can delay gratification. That is a very rational thing to do because your base instincts want expression, but you're delaying them and withholding them until the time is advantageous to you. He shows he is very capable of that, that he can do surveillance maybe several nights in a row and then act when it is the least risky for him to do so and when he has the best chance of success. So when we talk about, a, about 
this type of killer and people say, oh, they're, they're a crazed killer. I would argue against that and say there are some real indications that this is a highly rational being, albeit emotionally very different from the rest of us. In terms of the psychopathy checklist that you mentioned, Bob, that's created by Dr. Robert Hare, and he's world-renowned in the study of psychopathy. That checklist, that's all it is. You, you score. You're not going to meet every criteria on the checklist. But the higher score you have, the more likely you are to be a psychopath. And you have to be an expert in order to evaluate someone and evaluate the checklist and determine that they're a psychopath. Early on, when I was in the behavioral analysis unit, I was talking with our former boss, and I said, well, really the only criteria I think you really need to be a psychopath is lack of a conscience and lack of empathy for others. And he jokingly said, oh, well, why don't you just create the Cowley psychopathy checklist? <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's what I always think. I mean, if you have those two criteria met on the checklist, in my mind, you should be diagnosed a psychopath. I'm not an expert in this. I can't diagnose people, but that's what I've always thought. If you lack empathy and you lack a conscience, that is the bottom line of a psychopath. You may have all these other characteristics. Those can add to it. But that's, that's what I always thought. I don't know if that's right. Well, I think characterologically, yes, those things are the base characteristics. A lot of things mentioned in Hare's psychopathy checklist are behavioral expressions or societal reactions to, these, to possessing these characteristics and acting on these characteristics. For instance, a long criminal history. Well, the reason you might have a criminal history is because you've been apprehended committing crimes. And this is because you maybe have no, no conscience and you're, you have a callous personality and you're opportunistic and selfish, etc. The behavioral aspects can be very varied. Like we're talking about, they don't all go out and commit sexually motivated murder. Some of them are in business. Some are living next door to some of the people that are listening right now. They're a small percentage of the overall population of the world, but they're out there and not all of them are going to kill. Not all of them are even motivated to kill. They're not all sexually deviant. And as you said, they're not all impulsive. You could still easily meet the criteria evaluated with Hare's psychopathy checklist as a psychopath and have a zero rating on the impulsivity scale. You could get a zero rating on any of the 22 items on that list and still be declared a psychopath. The variations to add up to a, a score that would indicate psychopathy are enormous. You can have three different scores on each of those 22 items, and there is no configuration that is more likely than the other to add up to psychopathy. I agree with you that the basis of that condition are characterological, not behavioral. That's what I meant to say. Thank you. Back to the case. There's been no word. Several weeks go by. And at this point, investigatively, behaviorally, forensically, the determination is this is a true abduction. And she's gone and there's been no word. 
and there's no word until a few weeks later on February 24th of 2012. This is like more than three weeks after her disappearance. Samantha's boyfriend receives another text message and it reads Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? So after receiving this text message, they go to the park and the police find on one of the bulletin boards under a poster of a missing dog named Albert, they find a plastic bag which contained a picture of Samantha and a ransom note. In the picture, Samantha was holding a newspaper and that newspaper was dated February 13th. So that is being offered up by the perpetrator as a proof of life. See, she's still alive. She was alive on February 13th. She's holding up this newspaper. So that photograph and the ransom note was sent to us at the Behavioral Analysis Unit right at that time. And just one thing I just want to point out, there are some photographs that are out there on the internet. Those are not the real photographs of Samantha. Those are staged, made by other people. Those are not the photographs. The photographs, the photographs were um, ne- have never been released, and no one has ever seen them except law enforcement. So I want to make that clear in case there's anybody out there that's looking on the internet. Those are not the real photographs. So the photos were sent to us along with the ransom note. The ransom note demanded uh, $30,000. And we were asked to assess the note itself and whether or not we thought Samantha was still alive or could still be alive. I don't know about you that sometimes we have to be very detached when we do our work and we have to be not have feelings or or think things too much because it will cloud your work and your judgment and I do remember we got called in it was you know kind of all hands an emergency there's been more information on the Samantha Koenig abduction and we went into the conference room and there were copies of the photograph on the table and I I just remember staring at it for a long time like studying every detail of it she had makeup on her hair was done she was holding the newspaper her eyes looked open and, and she looked alive I wanted her to be alive but she also didn't look alive it was just it was a very troubling and disturbing photo I think I wanted her to be alive so much I was looking for any indication that she was really alive in that photograph I was so fixated on I completely lost track of what anyone was saying what we were talking about what our mission was at that moment it was um you know one of the moments where I think I kind of got derailed a bit but um you know what I noticed her makeup and maybe this is something like a female who wears makeup would notice but I kind of thought that just doesn't really look like the photographs I've seen of her how she does her makeup it didn't look right and I don't know if anyone else would have noticed that but it just didn't seem right it wasn't anything I could put my finger on but that was some some of my initial thoughts when we first got called into that conference room about the update and the investigation 
I, I would agree with you, Julia. I remember being um, I remember the photograph was very disconcerting that looking at it, you wanted to say, as you just said, oh, this, she must be alive. But then it was hard to put a finger on it, but it, it, there was something about it that just said, this doesn't look right. Maybe it was in comparison to photographs that were available of her when she was alive. And in comparison, this didn't look the same. You had to think, okay, she's clearly, she would clearly be under a lot of stress at this point. Was that what was distorting things? Was this fear that we were seeing? Any number of things that you were trying to consider while looking at this photograph, but it was, word that keeps coming to mind is disconcerting because it just didn't appear, like I said, right or or normal. It seemed unusual. And you're right, maybe it was the fact of the makeup that was different or the hair was different from the way that she would have normally worn it. And I kept making excuses. I guess I don't know if I was playing devil's advocate, but I was just looking for reasons she would be alive in the photograph. Like, well, maybe she's been gone for several weeks. She hasn't eaten. She's fearful. Her energy is drained. All of these reasons I was trying to come up with but I think after discussion amongst all of us you know the the determination was she's no longer alive and she's not alive in that photograph and that was hard to make that determination and at that point we truly knew at this point there's no question this is this was a real abduction the demand of thirty thousand dollars And what ended up happening is Samantha's father deposited money into her account and her debit card was used to take out the money and make withdrawals. So the ransom note itself was long and ransom notes are usually short, directly to the point. This was a longer note. It was typewritten. It was a low dollar amount. So... Was it a true ransom note? I think we determined it's not really a a true ransom note. This isn't going to be an exchange, at least not of a live victim at this point. The low dollar amount goes along with the motivation for writing the letter at all, which is to maintain the hopes of the survivors and to know at the time that you're only going to disappoint them and dash those hopes. But that, again, is psychologically pleasing to a sadist. The low dollar amount, I mean, if it were an outlandish amount of money and that the reaction were there's no way that we can get that kind of money, that would be discouraging. But where you're getting a, a ransom note, it is a, an obtainable amount of money that just increases whatever hope you have. If you're going to send a note and the person looks at it skeptically and says, I don't believe she's still alive. I I think this is just lies on the part of the abductor. That's not going to get the type of reaction that would be pleasing to someone like Israel Keyes. You know, it wasn't necessary. Could have just written the note. He didn't have to 
go to all this trouble of putting makeup on her, doing her hair, setting it all up. He, he didn't need to do any of that and then take a photograph of it and send it to the family. That was very ritualistic, not practical in this case. This is something he enjoyed and probably fantasized about the kind of reaction this was going to get. He also may have enjoyed the actual process of manipulating her body, making up her face, ensuring that her eyes would stay open. All this interaction with the body may have been expression of a paraphilia on his part. It's necrophilic in nature. Yes. Yes. As you're saying, it may very well have been sexually exciting for him. Even though she was deceased, he was still engaging in a level of control that is rare with someone alive or with someone dead. And what we know now is during that time, from the time that he abducted her until he sent the ransom note and the photograph, he was away on a trip with his family. So he left her and went away on a trip and then came back and did this, probably thinking about what his next steps were going to be while he's on this trip with his family. Probably made the trip pretty enjoyable for him because he could be thinking about this, fantasizing about it, knowing that he had this deep, dark secret and looking forward to getting home to engage in his next step in this horrific crime. One thing that was interesting to me is wondering if this was a completely separate plan to the first initial plan. We know he liked to have it all planned out soup to nuts, but did he have the plan after he left to go? Did he already know when he abducted her that he was going to do the ransom and play it out that way? I think that's a great question. Or did it become a completely new fantasy and a new process for him while he's on vacation, like you were saying, planning it out from there on out? I think it would be hard to know exactly how things were going to go. In terms of her selection, we've already discussed why we don't think her selection was random. He did surveillance. He knew the comings and goings of the kiosk. But in terms of afterwards, I'm not sure he knew exactly what he was going to be able to do. At the time he abducted her, he had to go back and get her cell phone. There was no debit card. He learned of the debit card likely after he abducted her and got that information out of her. And she tells him, it's in my boyfriend's truck. He goes and gets the debit card. So maybe around that time, and he goes on vacation, and during vacation, he starts thinking, okay, I've got this debit card. Maybe I can get money out. So I think that's a great question, Angela, and I think it's probably more likely that he started formulating this second part of his plan while on vacation. And again, that probably made the vacation really enjoyable because he was really looking forward to this, this next step. And he probably thought about it the whole time because that's what he does. And not only that, but he could follow the news back home and what was going on there, knowing that she was already deceased, safely tucked away in his shed. And that adds another layer 
if you will, of enjoyment for him, not only gives him time to plan further, but then also to enjoy what has already occurred and the public and family's reaction to that. Okay, I think we'll end here for today. On the next episode of The Consult, we'll continue our discussion of Israel Keys, including our thoughts on his death by suicide. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit The Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening. <laughs>